Powered by Clear Vision Development Group, this is Better Than Before with Tony Richards, a business leader's podcast. Each week, we'll provide you with top business insights, fresh perspectives from world-class guests, and the tools you need to lead better than before. And now, here's your host, author and business coach, Tony Richards. Hello, everybody. This is Tony Richards, and you're listening to a brand new episode of Better Than Before. Producer Bill is along for the ride again today. Hello. This is a leadership executive development type podcast. We talk about the latest business issues in the marketplace. We have special guests from time to time. We uh, do leadership lessons. Today, we're going to do a little different type show. We're going to do the latest news that we find interesting or relevant. Then in the second segment today, I'm going to talk to you about a book I just recently read. So I'm going to do a book review for you. And then in the third segment, I've got a little profile on Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon, that I want to do as part of our leadership and business lesson. Better Than Before is sponsored by University Subaru. From here, been here, always will be here. University Subaru, your truly locally owned dealer. And so Florence has wreaked havoc on the East Coast. The death toll is now at least 32 as of uh, our podcast today. 25 in North Carolina and the others in South Carolina and Virginia. The flooding is just horrible. 1.3 million people without electricity. Wow. When a disaster like that hits, my mind always goes to pets, animals, and elderly folks. And I just think about all that those elderly folks have probably done to contribute to those communities they live in and how scared they probably are. And uh, my prayers and thoughts, and I don't say that lightly, folks. When I say it, I mean it. My prayers and my thoughts are with all the people who are trying to survive and deal with the effects of Hurricane Florence. So just terrible footage on TV. I mean, just crazy flooding and people uh, homeless and trying to, you know, think about getting to shelter and then they'll have the difficult task of going back to their homes and see what's remaining and right going through the process of putting their life back together and yeah in some places the water's still rising too yeah yeah it's just terrible yeah here's another thing i've been meaning to mention for at least a week or two and it kind of took me by surprise because i didn't see it probably for a week and maybe two and then uh, the last couple of weeks it's just slipped my mind You may not know who Ed King is. He is most famous for writing the song Sweet Home Alabama. He was in the Leonard Skinner Band. He joined the band in 1972, and he died in Nashville at his home. He's 68, which is not that old. And because he's one of the last surviving members of that band, he's just really plentiful on YouTube. If you go to YouTube and you Google Ed King... You'll find all these guitar enthusiasts and uh, collectors and guitar appraisers visiting him at his house. People just go to his house and he shows off his guitar collection and he talks to them and they appraise his guitar. You know, this guitar, which one of his guitars is worth about a half a million dollars. 
another one of his guitars was worth about $100,000. These are guitars, you know, that he bought back in the 50s, and he's played famous songs on them. He's written famous songs on them or whatever. And because he's in all these YouTube videos and he looked in fair health, I mean, it really caught me by surprise. Well, it turns out he had lung cancer. And he was being treated for it and uh, had been hospitalized just a couple of days before he died. But he wasn't very public about it. I mean, not a lot of people knew, just his immediate family. So when he passed away, it was really surprising. On his Facebook page, there was an announcement that says, it, it is with great sorrow that we announce the passing of Ed King, who died at his home in Nashville, Tennessee, on August 22, 2018. We thank his many friends and fans for their love and support of Ed during his life and career. Ed was not a Southern boy. He grew up in California. He was in a 60s band called Strawberry Alarm Clock, and he had written the music for their biggest hit called Incense and Peppermints. He saw the Allman Brothers two weeks before Dwayne Allman had his fatal motorcycle accident. And he said, man, this Southern rock thing is where it's at. So he promptly picked up and moved to the South and developed a relationship with Ronnie Van Zant, who formed the band. Ed was the third guitarist with Alan Collins and Gary Rossington, creating that famous three-guitar sound that they had. Ed King played on their first three albums. Uh, their first album was called Pronounced Leonard Skinnerd. Their second album, which contained Sweet Home Alabama, was called Second Helping. And then their third album in 75 was called Nothing Fancy. Ed is the guy on Sweet Home Alabama, if you've ever noticed. They, they, I don't know that they played this part on the radio, but when the song starts, it starts with one, two, three, and then bum, 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 right? And Ed is the one who says one, two, three. It's just kind of an interesting little fact. But uh, there's a new documentary out that's been released this year called If I Leave Here Tomorrow, a film about Leonard Skinnerd. Ed is in the documentary a lot because he's one of the last living members of the original band. He and Gary Rossington are the only ones. Gary Rossington said something really funny about Ed King. He said, you know, Ed was very business-minded, and he left the band because he didn't really like the crazy rock and roll lifestyle. It was just too hectic for him, too much, you know, too much partying, not enough sleep, that kind of thing. He's like, but Ed had business mind. He said, we'd stop. And Ed would buy $100 worth of Slim Jims and put them in his briefcase. And after we were on the road for a couple hours, everybody would be hungry, and Ed would mark them up and sell them back to the band. <laughs> so he was an enterprising fellow. <laughs> the other little bit of trivia about Ed King that I'll pass along to you, and then I'll, I'll move on to Twitter here. But on the first album, which was called Pronounced, because of the way they spelled Leonard Skinner, they weren't sure that people weren't going to call him Lineyard Skynyard. Uh, they called the first album pronounced Leonard Skinner. On the album cover, there's the band is standing there, and there's like seven of them. And Ed is on the far left. If you're holding the album, it'd be on your right. If you turn the picture around where you were standing congruently with the band, he'd be on the far left. And just about the time they snapped the picture for the album cover, a lightning bolt flashed. And it flashed behind Ed, and it looks like it's striking Ed in the head. Right, And he thought, you know, all these people died in this plane crash except me. And I thought that was pretty interesting that I'm the one with the lightning bolt in my head. Wow. Yeah. And just a little bit more trivia there. Rest in peace, Ed. We're, we're going to miss you and your contribution to rock and roll for sure. 
Twitter is doing something I'm really glad about. So if you're a Facebook user now, when you go to your feed, you can click top stories or you can click most recent and uh, the top stories will be the ones that people have paid the most attention to. Most recent will be the most recent ones that people have posted. But still, you have a filtered feed that you're looking at on Facebook based on things you've either liked or clicked on or accessed before. So like me, I got 3,000 and something friends. I don't see all 3,000 my friends' updates right? because I've got a filtered feed. And it's Facebook is doing it. It's not something I can control. Well, Twitter is going back to the unfiltered feed, which I'm glad because if it's in my feed, I liked it. I selected it. Hell, I want to see it, right? Mm -hmm. Twitter's making it easier for users to see a full time-ordered list of messages from the people they follow the way the service worked at the start for everyone. Several years ago, Twitter, seeking to make its service easier for new users and those accustomed to Facebook's heavily filtered news feed, moved away from a simple timeline adding in case you missed it and suggested tweets from accounts a user didn't already follow. Twitter power users, I'd be in that. Twitter old timers and anyone who wants to use Twitter to monitor news events in real time are going to be really happy, and I'm really happy. I mean, 3,000 Facebook friends, but I've got almost 18,000 Twitter followers. And what's different is, and I don't know if you can do this on Facebook. Maybe you can. I don't have time to figure it all out. But on Twitter, I can create lists. So I create lists. So if I create for other coaches, let's say, and then I go through and pick out all the other coaches that I'm connected to, and I put them in a list. So then I can just click on my list, and I can see what everybody's put in there, right? I have a list of just Columbia people, people who are influential in newspedia in Columbia, Missouri. I click on that list and I see just that. So basically you can filter it yourself. Mm -hmm. And that's what I've done. So I don't need Twitter to filter it. I want Twitter to unfilter it, which is what they're going to do. I'll filter it myself and break it up into categories and lists and things that I need. So cannabis. In case you didn't know, uh, Canada begins legal sale of certain forms of cannabis beginning October 17th. So now beer isn't going to be Canada's calling card anymore, right? Right. Like when we were growing up, it was the McKenzie twins or brothers or whatever, eh? Right, right. Now it's not going to be that anymore. Now it's going to be a lot more Cheech and Chong. <laughs> up in smoke. Yeah. And that has, has spurred uh, some of the big industry, uh, drink industry, mm -hmm. uh, to maybe jump into the fray and offer a form of uh, a cannabis drink. And Coca-Cola is monitoring the industry to see if maybe that might be an opportunity for them. Wow. And uh, Molson Coors Beer Company, speaking of beer... Uh, Molson, too. I mean, right, yeah, Canadian beer. Yeah. Is starting a joint venture with Quebec's Hexos Corporation to develop a cannabis drink in Canada. I'll be. Yeah. You know, it's legal in Seattle because I was in Seattle here a month or so ago. So we're walking down the street and there's cannabis smoke coming out of the alley, you know? And I'm like, why are they doing that? It's what they used to do when it was illegal. Like, why are they down the alley smoking cannabis? So I just yelled down the alley, hey, come on out. It's okay. It's legal now. <laughs> I got no response. So, but, uh, so Canada... Well, man, it's cold up there. Does cannabis keep you warm? Or? Not that I'm aware of. Well, the first private moon passenger has been announced. Announcing this is Elon Musk with his company SpaceX. Yosaku Meizawa 
I think is how you pronounce that. My apologies if I got that wrong. A Japanese billionaire is going to be the first ever passenger for a commercial rocket trip around the moon. Uh, Mazawa says he plans to invite six or eight artists, architects, designers, and other creative people to join him for the week-long journey to inspire the dreamer in all of us. Is that something you'd want to do? Yeah, I don't know, man. I'm I'm happy with 50,000 feet, you know. I, <laughs> when I get up above the clouds, it makes me a little nervous. I don't know if I could go. The sky gets black. and Right, right. For me, it's a little bit of claustrophobia, being in that small little compartment. My palms get sweaty when I watch Apollo 13. I don't know if I could. <laughs> and there's going to be a new movie out about John Glenn. Have you seen that? Trailer? No, I haven't it's seen it. called First Man. No. And uh, about John Glenn making the first orbit. Is it going to be a, a movie or a documentary? Yeah, it's a movie. Okay. So the Big Falcon rocket is scheduled to make the trip in 2023, Musk announced at his SpaceX headquarters near L.A. Musk said the entrepreneur founder of Japan's largest retail website, which is the online fashion mall Zozo Town, and one of the country's richest people will pay a lot of money for the trip. That I have no doubt. <laughs> but he declined to disclose the exact amount of the purchase price. Mazawa came to SpaceX with the idea for the group flight, Musk said. So the Emmys are out. HBO and Netflix are cleaning up. Network streaming giant Netflix and longtime channel HBO each got 23 Emmys. Game of Thrones and The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel are the big winners. Sorry if I'm mispronouncing that, too. Uh, captured the top honors in drama and comedy at the 70th Primetime Emmy Awards. A tie between HBO and Netflix for the most wins demonstrates just how splintered and wide open the television landscape has become in the era of streaming services. When the Emmy nominations were announced in July, Netflix seemed the big winner dethroning HBO, television's long-reigning tastemaker, with 112 nominations compared to 108. Wow. That's a lot. That is. But redemption for HBO came when they won with Game of Thrones, Westworld, and Barry. HBO came away with 23 Emmys, as did Netflix, which picked up trophies in acting categories for godless and British monarchy drama, The Crown. Have you ever watched The Crown? I haven't. Yeah, that's a good series. NBC came in third with 16. FX Networks landed 12. And that was mainly because of The Americans. Have you ever watched that show? Another one I haven't seen. It's about the 80s. And it's about this couple who are United States people who are really Russians. Oh. And so they're undercover Russian spies living in the United States in the 80s. That sounds interesting. Yeah, it, it's a pretty good show, too. But, yeah, no Ozark that, that I can see. That doesn't mean it wasn't nominated for something. I mean, they won 23 of them. They could be in there somewhere. I just have a very sure. very short list here of just, just the high spots. Have you watched Ozark? I have. Have you watched the second season? I have not seen it yet. Okay. It's in my queue. All right. Well, I won't. I won't ruin it for you, as as I have promised many people who are either in the middle of it or have it on their list. All I can tell you is I watched it over a three-night period. Whoa. Three episodes a night for three nights, and I had a fourth one on that last night. And 
that's about all I can handle at one time. I say those are pretty intense. Yeah. I'm like, honey, I got to check out here. I'll meet you back here tomorrow night, you know, for <laughs> for three more, but I I I can't take any more right now. They they've about driven my adrenaline to the like the cuz a lot of times what happens is and and I've noticed this, it's just natural that when a show starts or when it goes to its next season, usually the first 3 episodes they're building a new story arc, right? They're putting the foundation together. And then my wife always says, it doesn't seem to be as good as it was last year. Well, she just come off the finale, mm-hmm. which is the crescendo of the previous season. The first couple of episodes of the new season are not going to be as intense as the finale. Not so with Ozark. <laughs> I mean, right out of the gate, man, it's like a flamethrower. Wow. Every episode is just like 100 miles an hour. Well, good. And the other thing is, like, there's a lot of Missouri mentions in this season. So mm-hmm. Cape Girardeau's mentioned, uh, Lynn is mentioned. They do a lot of scenes uh, that are supposedly Jefferson City. Mm-hmm. Doesn't necessarily look like Jefferson City to me, but it's supposed to be. Uh, Kansas City, they do some scenes around Kansas City. So Now, isn't that shot in Georgia? Yeah, I, don't, I think so. I think so, too. I mean, in my mind when I'm watching it, it's in the Ozarks or it's in Missouri. They do a pretty good job at suspending your disbelief, you know. So I'm in Missouri when I'm watching it. <laughs> because we live so close, it sure. doesn't take much to get there, right, in your right. in your mind. But I highly recommend season two of Ozark on Netflix. Okay. All right, so that's the latest news. And when we come back on Better Than Before, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the latest book from an author that I really, really enjoy. And I'll tell you why I enjoy them and give you a little bit of detail. I'm even going to read a little bit of the book to you. Coming up next on Better Than Before, sponsored by University Subaru. From here, been here, always will be here. University Subaru, your truly locally owned dealer. Hi, I'm Dave Drain. And I'm Dan Burks. And we're the owners of University Subaru. As a locally owned business, we care for our community. We know how important it is to give back because we grew up here and we raised our family here. This is our home which means we care for customers like we care for the community. University Subaru, your truly locally owned dealer. From here, been here, and we will always be here for you. We're back on Better Than Before. I'm Tony Richards, and uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about a book that I just finished. It's the fourth in a series by an author, and his name is Stephen Pressfield. And Stephen Pressfield has written a lot of nonfiction. He's written a lot of fiction. Most famously, the writer of the book and movie The Legend of Bagger Vance, starring Will Smith. If you've seen that movie, that was written by Stephen Pressfield. He's written a lot of books for people who believe they have an artistry and a creative bent to themselves. His first book that he wrote was called The War of Art. And the thing that really struck me about The War of Art is this idea that there is a resistance that exists that is trying to keep you from being your best self. When you feel that you have something to offer creatively, and I believe that this applies to every person. So if you're an executive, it's going to try to prevent you from being the best executive. 
if you're a writer, it's going to try to keep you from writing words on the page. Resistance is going to get in your way, and it's going to try to keep you from being the best fill-in-the-blank that there is. And, you know, one thing that I've observed, and I don't know that Stephen really articulates this in The War of Art, but one thing I've observed, resistance customizes itself to the person that it's being resistance to. So in other words, the resistance that I face every day in trying to be the best Tony Richards I can be is customized to Tony Richards. My fears and feelings and constraints are mine and mine alone. And they are very, very effective at trying to keep me from doing the things I know I need to do in order to be what I really want to be. That is the central idea around the war of art. And then he continues that idea in another book called Do the Work. He takes the theme of the difference between an amateur and a professional. A lot of people are doing things that they have to do, they feel, to make a living. And that's their amateur situation versus if they were doing it as a professional and they were making a living at it. For instance, a fellow might be a dentist, let's say, and I'm just pulling these things out of the air, right? I'm not referring to anybody specific. A fellow might be a dentist, and he is using that dentist occupation to feed his family and to provide for his family and all that. But what he really, really enjoys and loves is cars, So on the weekends, he goes to car shows and he goes to work on his antique car or car restoration or whatever it is around cars that he really enjoys doing. And that's really the thing that he needs to be doing as a profession because that's where his passion lies. But for whatever reason, resistance has convinced him that he has to stay over here in this other thing in order to provide for himself and his family. So that is the theme of the book Turning Pro, which is the third book kind of in that artistry series. Well, the fourth book, which just came out like six, eight weeks ago, that I have thoroughly enjoyed reading called The Artist's Journey. And The Artist's Journey is about the process of once you decide that you're going to go down a particular path, and that you're going to start fighting resistance, which is against you and is going to try to prevent you from being the best fill in the blank that you can be. There is a journey involved in doing that. And so in the artist's journey, Stephen Pressfield explores that entire idea. Here's a piece of the book called Dark Night of the Soul. And this is the very first thing he writes in the book. He says at least once a day, Sometimes three or four, someone sends me an email describing with excruciating vividness their losing struggle with their own resistance. Many of these letters are heartbreaking. They plead for help. How, they ask, can I stop drinking? How can I stop doing drugs? How can I stop having self-destructing habits? How can I stop neglecting my children? How can I stop mistreating my spouse? How can I stop doing these things and start doing my best work? or my soul's desire? How can I keep up my will to fight? In Hollywood terms, we would say of these people that they're in their all is lost moment. 
They are at the point in their hero's journey where they are as far from their objective as possible. They are torn between their daemon, the inherent spirit summoning to live out their higher destiny, and the very real demands and fears of the material world in which they and their families dwell. And then he kind of goes into his own all-is-lost moment. You kind of get the idea of what he's trying to describe to you because he talks about what he went through. He says, I'm 24 years old, married, and working as an advertising writer in New York City at an agency called Benton and Bowles, stuck in the boring world. I've got a boss named Ed Hannibal. He quits and writes a novel. It's a huge success, and I think, hell, why don't I do that? That was the call. I do quit. I've got a wife I love. She supports me, and I start writing. I'm trying to write a novel. I have no idea what a novel is or what writing is, and I certainly have no idea what resistance is. And the villain appears. Short version is, I get 99.9% .9 of the way through and I freak out. I blow up the book and my marriage. Even shorter version, I wind up on the American road in my 65 Chevy van. Act 2, The Upside Down World. I crossed the U.S. 13 times working all the jobs a screwed up writer works. I teach school, I pick fruit, I drive trucks, I work on offshore oil rigs. Archetypes appear. I meet and become friends with older mentors, helpful and non-helpful women, even spirit animals. The ordeal deepens. I'm fighting my own cowardice and running away from writing, plus my guilt over hurting my wife, disgracing my family, and etc. In total defeat, I crawl back to New York City and find work driving a cab. What's left for me? I can't go back out on the road and I can't find my way forward. I have now hit my all-is-lost moment. And then he goes on and says, then what follows is the epiphany moment. In Hollywood parlance, the all is lost moment is often succeeded, often immediately by the epiphanal moment. In this moment, the hero experiences a breakthrough. The breakthrough is almost always internal. The hero changes their attitude. They regroup. They see their dilemma from a new perspective, one that they had never considered before, or if they had considered it, would reject. A point of view that offers either hope or desperation amounting to hope. The narrative now enters Act 3. The hero, fortified by this fresh hope or desperation, charges full tilt into the climax. This is where Sarah Connor stops running and turns to confront the Terminator. Luke Skywalker boards his X-Wing and flies against the Death Star. Bogey makes the decision to put Ingrid with her husband Paul on the plane to Lisbon while he himself stays to confront the enemies of freedom. Here is my epiphanal moment as described in The War of Art. And then he goes into what he's already written in The War of Art. And he says, my hero's journey has now ended and my artist's journey is now beginning. The point is, when you finally confront the thing that you know internally that you should always have been doing, there's going to be resistance. And the rest of the journey that you take from that point forward, once you commit to doing what you were born to do, then the artist's journey and the resistance is going to really begin and get intense. As he described there in three really powerful ways, like it happens in the movies. Movies are just reflection of real life stuff. If you go back and look at your life in chapters, what I will often do with a coaching client is I will actually have them write their life. And the way I'll have them do it is I'll say, okay, chapter one is age one to 10. I want you to describe to me what your life was like 
growing up from age 1 to age 10. Chapter 2 is age 11 to age 20. Tell me what happened in your life and hit the high points of age 11 to 20. Chapter 3 is age 21 to age 30. What's interesting is how the story of all those clients weave throughout those particular decades and how they all begin to look interestingly common and similar around 25 or 30 to 40 to 45 when they find this particular calling that they want to do and they they veer off and do the thing that they feel like they were always supposed to be doing which then brings a bunch of different challenges to it. I'd highly recommend this series of books and if you are thinking about starting this from scratch I would start with The War of Art. If you want to just dive into some of Stephen's work and get a feel for it this latest book is called The Artist's Journey. I just really really enjoy it. I think it's really really great. It certainly speaks to my heart and my soul especially if you write at all it's going to speak directly to you but anybody who is trying to craft a life out of a calling that you think you have to be a very high-level, dedicated professional. This is going to speak to you really, really well. And one of the things that's interesting in the book that I really enjoyed was he takes a couple of artists' works. So he'll take the Rolling Stones, for example. He'll take their first three albums, And then he talks about their next three albums, then their next three. And you can see around album six or seven how then they become the Rolling Stones we've always known and loved and what we think of when we think of the Rolling Stones. Those first three albums are fairly obscure. But think of all the people who never get to make one or two albums. So they never get to go on that journey that takes a little bit to craft. It took the Eagles a few albums to get to Hotel California. The second album that the Eagles put out was trashed by the record executives. They said, oh my God, what have you done? took a couple albums for them to find their signature sound and get to that place. And I think that's pretty common with most people. It takes a little bit. Let me share a couple more things from the book for you. This is called The Artist's Journey is Internal. This speaks to me. Let's see if it does anything for you. He says, I used to write at a desk that faced a wall. And my friends would ask, why don't you turn the desk around so you have a view to the outside? I don't care about the view outside. My focus is inside. The book or movie I'm writing is playing inside my head. Dalton Trumbo wrote in the bathtub. Marcel Proust never got out of bed. Why should they? The journey they were on was inside themselves. This is called The Artist's Journey is Personal. The novels of Philip Roth are completely different from those of Jonathan Franzen. Neither author, gifted as he may be, can do what the other does. In fact, neither can write anything except what his own gift authorizes, that which is unique to him alone. And I would say that executives and CEOs and business owners are that way. And I think that is what the big danger is in copying and emulating somebody else. Because you're trying to take something that they are expressing from inside themselves and claim that as your own. And you're trying to copy and emulate that when you should be following what's inside you. I can say that is why I've never really gravitated toward selling somebody else's product. I've never been part of anybody else's network. I've never wanted to teach anybody else's curriculum, which comes out of a book that somebody else has written. 
I don't want to teach what comes out of somebody else. I want to teach what comes out of me. That's something that's just really, really important to me. I want the things that I produce to be authentically me and to come from inside me. This is called The Artist's Journey is Universal. Millions of people can read Philip Roth and Jonathan Franzen and be touched and moved and illuminated. What is personal to the artist is universal to the rest of us. And this final one that I can definitely attest to, the artist's journey is solitary. Yes, artists collaborate. And yes, there's such a thing as the writer's room. But the work of the artist takes place not on the page or in conversation or debate, but inside their head. You, the artist, are alone in that space. There is no one in there but you. And I can tell you, you know, sometimes I write three times a week. Sometimes I have a column for the Tribune. I have weekly Friday blog posts for our website, and I have a weekly newsletter. At the least, I will write twice a week. I'll write a blog for Friday, and I'll write the Monday morning memo. I'll tell you, sometimes you sit down and nothing comes out. You have to wait on that sometimes, but what's coming out is going to come from you. And so you have to wait. Other times, it's like turning on a fire hydrant. I mean, you sit down and it just flows out of you. And I think you get caught up in resistance. There's some weeks I don't want to sit down and write. And I have to find a way to fight through the resistance and sit down and write. That's what limits a lot of people and keeps a lot of people back is the resistance is customized for you. Whatever your weak spot is, whatever your tender point is, whatever is going to hold you back, your resistance is customized and designed especially to do that. And you have to learn to identify it, you have to learn to recognize it, and you have to learn how to deal with it or else uh, resistance will conquer you. And those are all great concepts from my good friend Stephen Pressfield hope we can have him on the show someday because he would be a dynamic guest if you get a chance get the artist journey by Stephen pressfield i think you'll enjoy it i'll be back with the ceo profile of jeff bezos right after this on better than before receive weekly coaching tips from tony richards delivered straight to your inbox whether you're a ceo or an entrepreneur tony can help you reach your goals and give you a competitive edge within your industry Tony's Monday Morning Coaching Memo covers topics ranging from leadership development to teamwork to company culture and more. Text the word leadership to 38470 to sign up for Tony's Monday Morning Coaching Memo or sign up online at clearvisiondevelopment.com. on this week's edition of Better Than Before, a business and leadership podcast. I'm Tony Richards. We're sponsored by University Subaru. From here, been here, always will be here, University Subaru, your truly locally owned dealer. I'm going to give you a CEO profile today. This is some things that I thought were pretty interesting around a guy who runs and is the founder of Amazon. And uh, I talk about Amazon quite a bit in a lot of my presentations and speeches because they're a big innovator in technology and in our life today. And they're basically changing the way the world works. They're not only a threat to current business and its current state, they're also changing the habits of consumers everywhere. 
And sometimes I think people think about the Amazon threat and they think about how it's changing business as far as a direct customer sales standpoint. But what they often overlook is that the habits of people are changing because they're getting customized messages from Amazon. They're able to push one button. They're able to get two-day free delivery. These are all things that weren't necessarily available before. And then it causes the customer to look at your business and go, why can't you do that? So if you're not really paying attention to the customer experience and the customer roadmap, that can put serious hurt on your business because customers by the millions are changing their mindset about how business ought to operate because of their dealings with companies like Amazon. They're not the only one. There are companies out there. If if you can download an app from Domino's and they can tell you exactly what stage your pizza is in and exactly where your pizza is in route to your house and what time your pizza is going to be there and the name of the person delivering your pizza and how much it's going to be and a calculated tip and all that stuff, they're going to look at your business and go, how come you can't do that? How come you can't track your delivery time and and have my name on it and those things? So that's what I'm saying about changing customer habits. As I say, they're not the only one, and I use Domino's for example. You could use 10 different examples there. But Jeff Bezos was on stage recently in Washington, D.C., And here's a piece of advice that he gave out. He said, all my best decisions in business and in life have been made with heart, intuition, and guts, not analysis. So for a lot of data-driven people, and I would say I am a data-driven person, we do a lot of work with our clients based on data and facts and science, that can get a little disconcerting because he didn't say some of my, he said all of my. All of my best decisions have been made with heart, intuition, and guts. If you can make a decision with analysis, you need to do it. But it turns out in life, your most important decisions are always made with instinct and intuition. He says, everything I have ever done has started small, Bezos added, drawing laughter at the 32nd anniversary dinner of the Economic Club of Washington, D.C. Amazon, which he founded, now has 500,000 employees We started with five people. It's hard to remember for you guys, but for me, it's like yesterday. I was driving the packages to the post office myself and hoping one day we could afford a forklift. And I remember in another book I read or a magazine article or something, they were putting the contents into the packages, him and five other people. And Bezos said, I stupidly said what we need is a, another person to help us with packages and two or three of his other people said no what we need is a better system for putting packages together or they said we need a packaging table or an assembly line or something like that anyway they said two or three things more brilliant than what he said he thought they just needed another person amazon's president ceo and chairman was interviewed at the washington hilton for 70 minutes by david rubenstein co-founder and executive chairman of the carlisle group and president of the Economic Club. After a long answer, Rubenstein cut off Bezos and said, you'll have to excuse me, I'm not used to cutting off the richest man in the world. Bezos, who's 54 years old, also owns the Washington Post, where last week he cut the ribbon on a newsroom expansion to accommodate 850 journalists and 350 engineers. 
I suppose if you owned Amazon, you could afford to support a newspaper in today's day and time because most of them are not adding jobs, I promise you. Most of them are cutting back. Business best practices. This is interesting. Bezos says he sets his first meeting at 10 a.m. He says, I go to bed early and I get up early. That's his first win of the day. He says, I like to putter in the morning. I like to read the newspaper. I like to have coffee. I like to have breakfast with my kids before they go to school. And I do my high IQ meetings or meetings that have a lot of thinking to them before lunch. Like anything that's going to be really mentally challenging, that's a 10 o'clock in the morning meeting. By 5 o'clock, I'm like, I can't think anymore today. Let's try this again tomorrow at 10 a.m. And that's, you know, a best practice that we use to with our leaders is you have to perform your most challenging task when you have the most energy. When you start to perform your most challenging task at your low energy times, you're going to be really frustrated. Bezos said in regards to sleep, he gets eight hours. He says, I prioritize sleep. I think better. I have more energy and my mood is better. As a senior executive, you get paid to make a small number of high-quality decisions. Your job is not to make thousands of decisions every day. Good point. The higher you are in the organization, you make fewer decisions. They're just more impactful and important. Is it really worth it if the quality of those decisions are going to be lower because you're tired or grouchy? Because you didn't go to bed. You didn't get the right amount of sleep. Here's one of the most cutting edge and interesting things that I think really ought to get your attention. So reach over to the volume knob and turn it up two more notches right now. Are you listening? All of our senior executives operate the same way I do. How's that, you might ask? He says, they work in the future. They live in the future. And then he says something I think is really amazing because we coach our clients constantly to work on a 90-day quarterly time clock. Do a 13-week or 12-week sprint Focus relentlessly on execution. Then take a few days to plan the next 90 days. Strategize it out. Plan out your execution. And then relentlessly execute over that next 12 or 13 weeks. That 90-day sprint and that 90-day run. So listen to what Bezos says here. Right now, I'm working on a quarter that's going to reveal itself in 2021. Right now, I'm working on a quarter that's going to reveal itself in 2021. So he's in 2018. Right now, we're in third quarter here at the end of September. And he's working on a quarter that's going to happen three years from now. 19, 2021. Yeah, three years from now. So you go back to that statement. He said, we, we work in the future. We live in the future. If I make three good decisions a day, that's enough. Warren Buffett says he's good if he makes three good decisions a year. Bezos says if he makes three good decisions a day, that's, that's enough. And I just find that fascinating. He's strategically working on a quarter of 2021, and it's third quarter 2018. I mean, that is amazing. From a charitable standpoint, Bezos' $2 billion charity is expanding. He and his wife, who is a novelist, Mackenzie Bezos, said, 
that their new Bezos Day One Fund will spend $2 billion on a nonprofit organization working on homelessness and creating a network of free Montessori-inspired preschools for low-income areas. A new class of tech elites is using ambitious philanthropic strategies to transform money into influence. Bezos said his project's network of preschools will treat children like Amazon treats the customer very, very well. So some things I wanted to share with you about Jeff Bezos today and give you a quick profile of Jeff as a CEO of Amazon and some of the other things he's involved in, like the Washington Post and his charitable contributions. And I love that futuristic thinking. Futuristic thinking is typically the lowest score on our skills assessment. And the average leader usually scores on a scale of 0 to 10, 2.8 on futuristic thinking. So if you score a 2.8 on futuristic thinking out of 10, I'm going to tell you right now, you're not planning 2021, right? I think that's just an important thing to bring out, just how far ahead they're planning and thinking about taking their various businesses under the Amazon umbrella. That's our show today. I hope you enjoyed it. Remember, you can subscribe. That way you'll get an identification every time our show drops, usually on Tuesday. It'll be right there waiting for you to listen at your convenience anytime you want to. And I really would appreciate it if you could give us a five-star review. And I really want to ask you, as our listenership is growing, we get new listeners every single week. We want to welcome you, and we want you to know we appreciate you listening to our podcast because we're putting our best effort out there to give you something that's enjoyable and educational and informative. And if you could just tell one other person about the Better Than Before podcast and convert them to a listener, I would be highly appreciative of you, and thank you very much. Better Than Before is sponsored by University Subaru. From here, been here, always will be here. University Subaru, your truly locally owned dealer. I'm Tony Richards, wishing you the best, most productive week possible this week. And remember, everything gets better when you get better. Thank you for listening to Better Than Before with Tony Richards, a business leaders podcast powered by Clear Vision Development Group. For more resources from Tony, visit clearvisiondevelopment.com. Join us next time for another episode of Better Than Before with Tony Richards. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>